Tēnā koutou no mai, hi to mai. Welcome to q and I'm Jack Tame. Today, at a critical time for the education sector, Education Minister Jan Tanetti is with us live. Then, we look at the future of New Zealand's food system. Can regenerative farming practices work at commercial scale? And a year since Te Whatu Health New Zealand was established, we ask what improvements have been made to the so-called postcode lottery. Primary, secondary and tertiary, New Zealand's education system is under extraordinary pressure at the moment. After years of disruption in our schools, teacher strikes have seen tens of thousands of kids stuck at home yet again. Schools have expressed major concerns about the rollout of new NCEA standards. And despite a $128 million rescue package announced this week, several universities are still planning to cut jobs. Jan Tanetti is the Minister for Education and is with us this morning. Kia ora, good morning. Kia ora, Jack. I'm going to break the interview into two parts. So in the first part, let's talk about the primary and secondary sectors. We'll talk about uh, teacher shortages. And then in the second part of the interview, we'll talk about access to education. Mm. So to begin, since Labor came to government in 2017, what evidence can you point to that overall education outcomes for New Zealand school students have improved? Well, I do know that when we're talking about overall, we can point to different parts of the sector where education outcomes have improved, but we also know that there's lots to go, lots of room to manoeuvre and lots of ways that we have to go to get there for everyone. We know that uh, literacy is on the up because the Better Start Literacy results that we've introduced since we've come in are making a big difference for Mm. our young people in this country. We also know that COVID has put a a big impact and had a big impact on our young people and we saw Mm. attendance rates drop off. But we know the packages that we've implemented are making a difference and Mm. we're starting to see that turn around. We know it's a big beast to turn around though. Yeah, I'm I'm gonna talk about attendance very shortly because um, you had new attendance data out on Friday, so I I will get to that. But attendance isn't necessarily an education outcome, is it? So, So you talked about the literacy, what else has improved? Well, we also know that we're starting to see better outcomes in other academic areas as well because we mm. are refreshing the curriculum. So we know that we're starting to see better outcomes because teachers in maths, for example, again, and going back to literacy across the whole of literacy mm. because teachers are starting to understand now when they're seeing that refresh, refresh curriculum exactly mm. what it is that they're meant to be teaching. There's not that same diversity before um, and inconsistency that was Mm. happening across classrooms. There is a willingness to make certain that we're we're getting there and that we're consistent in our Relative to other countries, literacy and numeracy standards in New Zealand have gotten worse though. If we're looking at international measures, that's absolutely right. right. But we also know that we're still well above the OECD mean so right but my question is what, what's enough. improved since yeah. 2017 and, and not... literacy and numeracy relative to other comparable countries has got worse yeah and that's why we had to look at a staged mm. approach around that so we've started with early childhood yeah. to be fair and we've put some new initiatives in there and then we're looking at what is it for our five and six mm. year olds and going through making sure it's sequential yeah what, what I'm interested in though is overall education outcomes so let's look at the secondary sector you've been working on changes to NCEA mm. you're planning to refresh NCEA are you still committed to introducing the new NCA Level 1 next year? Yes. Has the curriculum for the new NCA Level 1 been finalised? Parts of it have been. Have, has all of it no, been finalised? No, parts of it have been. So we're introducing a new NCA Level 1 next year and 
in seven months' time and we haven't finalised the curriculum. But we know that we're on track with what that new refreshed curriculum is going to look like. So we know in the key areas, mm. like literacy and mathematics, that that has been finalised. Those are the key areas. Science has been finalised. Social sciences, or is close to being finalised. Social sciences are finalised. But they haven't been finalised. So, so the standards have been finalised, but the curriculum hasn't been finalised. No, they haven't been. But aren't, isn't that putting the cart before the horse? It, it was something that when I took over the NCA change programme that I was concerned about. But I do have a advisory group who are made up of uh, principals who are well respected right. throughout the secondary system who have gave me the same uh, idea that we were a little bit one was in front of the other mm. but when we looked at delaying level one mm. very very happy now with what is happening in that because of the work that sits underneath it's not just the standards, it's the matrix but, that sits underneath that, where there will be room to manoeuvre that. So, so, so your advisory group expressed concern that you were putting the cart before the horse. Has their opinion changed? They are feeling a lot happier now, absolutely, because level two and level three, I'll get to those levels which in a moment. are high stakes, <laughs> yeah. won't be coming in until when the curriculum Yeah, so is. explain to me the rationale there. Um, so, so, so year 11 students next year will be doing the refreshed NCEA. Mm. Then, because you've delayed levels two and three, they will go back to the old standards for level two and three. That's right. That's right. Now, how does that make any sense? That that wouldn't to people outside of education. Totally understand that. But the pilots that have been running do show that actually there's that transition to level two as it currently stands is working really well. In fact, our young people who have been through the new standards in level one and have been piloting them have a much better grasp coming through just because of the foundational knowledge that the level one is going through. But there's, and no, there's no coherence. Yes, uh, there is. The, 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 now, how can there be coherence if, if you're doing a, a refreshed level one and then going back to the old levels two and three? And I would have said exactly the same thing prior to seeing what was happening in the schools where they're piloting them. And there are some amazing people who are going yeah. through this really in depth who tell me that their young people are having way more knowledge coming into level two and level three than what they did before. So I'm... I'm not going to go on what I thought might have been the case. I'm going to go on the evidence and the research mm. that tells me that actually mm. they're way better placed than what they were before. We know we're getting this right because the, we've been piloting this. We know right. that this is going to set them up for success. So in May, New Zealand's largest school, Rangitoto College, announced it will not be using the new NCA and will introduce its own diploma for Year 11s. What do you understand of the school's concerns? Level one has always been optional and right from the word go and they have had concerns around the fact that it doesn't work for them. Conversely... Why not? Why doesn't it work for them? You'd have to ask you, them that. You've just that. told us it's great. You, you, yeah. You've explained yeah. that the new level one's great. You, you would have to ask them that because I'm not going to presuppose what it is about it that doesn't work for them. But conversely, have you spoken there to are the principal? a number of schools that are reintroducing level ha, one. Have you spoken to the principal? No, but my officials have. And, my a, officials, and what was the feedback from My officials, officials tell me that it was around the fact that it didn't work for them, that it was... Uh, what, that what does that they, mean? Well, can I also put it like this, that I've spoken to the principal of Wellington girls mm. who told me that they were looking for a more um, bespoke pathway in year 11 that suited them. That's my understanding from Rangitoto as well, but my officials have worked that through with them. Uh, are, are they tell me that. That, that New Zealand's largest school, the state school, 
is so concerned with the new standards in NCAA Level 1, the refreshed standards, that they've decided to pull out? No, because it's optional. I would how, be... how many schools this year ha have decided that they will pull out of the refreshed NCA Level 1? Out of the over 500 schools, we know that there are four that have advised the Ministry that they won't be doing that, but for various reasons. Not because they don't believe in that, mm. it's for wanting to set, some of them wanting to set up their own. So out of that, we've also know of two who are deciding to reintroduce Level 1. And, and how many are considering stepping out of NCA Level 1? That I don't know. It's not just the flash schools. I spoke to the principal of Rose Hill College in Papakura and she said there's no alignment between the refreshed curriculum and the new NCEA standards, so the school is going to introduce its own level one qualification. She said to me, it's just too much stress. What is your response to that? When I talked to my professional advisory group, again, <coughs> very well-respected principals, they were concerned that schools' messaging was starting to... Um, get out of hand because they've seen the results of these pilots. They're also, mm. some of them are piloting themselves. Mm. And they want to make certain that schools are making an informed decision based on the results of the pilots and based on what they're seeing. They say and tell me, and they are the experts, mm. that this is incredible. This work is amazing and will make a difference, that the changes were much needed. They want to see those changes going ahead. Uh, I looked at different ways of when we might delay or what, when we might mm. introduce, but I have to say that the professional advisory group really strongly encouraged me to go ahead with this next year. This is the same professional advisory group that had major concerns about you putting the cart before the horse when it comes to yeah. standards versus the curriculum. Yeah, but they're very, very set on the fact that it should be starting next year. Looking at the 2021 figures for NCEA, in which NZQA allowed for some additional credits to make up for COVID-19, just 62.9% of Māori school leavers attained NCEA level two or above, so less than two thirds. Do you think the system's failing Rangatahi Māori? We always know that there's been inequities. I mean, I know this better than anyone, having mm. taught in a school where we had high percentage of Māori. The system hasn't been serving them well. One of the reasons why we're making these changes. It, right. Do, do you believe it's still failing Māori? I believe that until we get these changes through, that that has been the case and will be the case. In the primary sector, um, three weeks ago you attended the Educational Leadership Crisis Summit. So as part of that summit, New Zealand Educational Institute, um, the New Zealand Educational Institute, Te Ruaroa, uh, presented a survey in which almost half of primary principals, new primary principals in New Zealand, said they plan to leave their job in the next five years. Why do you think that is? It has been tough, and, and I addressed the summit uh, and absolutely acknowledged that it has been really tough. It was tough prior to COVID, being a school principal, but COVID has really exacerbated this. Some of the issues that they are now dealing with, some of the issues around, I know we're going to talk about attendance, but, but getting young people back and engaged in schooling. Uh, the fact that when we started all our change programmes, COVID wasn't in our vernacular. We didn't even know mm. that word. So we've had to look at how we can support them through the changes by delaying, but also other supports that are needed as well. So what will it take to improve that? If, if half, that's extraordinary, right? Half yeah. of new principals plan to leave their job in the next five yeah, years. absolutely. And one of the areas that I have announced in recent times mm. is the Ministerial Advisory Group around staffing, because we know that staffing... Staffing doesn't look much different to when I started teaching, which was back in 1990. Mm. 
the same formulas that we use to work out staffing exist right now. Mm. We need to make sure that we've got staffing that is consistent across all sectors but also fit for purpose for today. And that's why that ministerial advisory group is really important. But we've got to work with the sector on mm. this. This is not government doing two. This is us working together on mm. what is right for education right now. So the, uh, the, the, um, the union also surveyed um, 629 principals across the country. So of 629, do you know how many said they felt well supported in their roles? I wouldn't think it would be very many at the moment, considering that there's been industrial processes. Just like to say, though, that they settled their claim this week, so I was happy about that. Zero. Yeah, I, I, I'm not surprised, and I'm not surprised. I know what it was like. I personally know what it was like prior to 2017 when I came into politics. I know that it was a difficult and complex job. I don't think people outside of the sector understand it. Do you? Oh, yeah. Do you? I mean, yes. if 629 yes. principals yes, have I been do. surveyed and zero say they feel well supported, what is the point in having a former principal as the Minister of Education? Yes, I do understand it because I have walked in those shoes. I have absolutely walked in those shoes. But what I always say to them when I am addressing them yeah. or talking with them is that I haven't walked through COVID times either and it has been really difficult, mm. which is why leadership <coughs> is one of my top priorities as Education Minister. I came into this job in February. Mm. Leadership is hugely important in our schools and mm. we must make certain we're supporting our leaders. So your government has criti criticised National's um, Better Start Education Plan as a return to national standards. So if I was to ask you how Year 5s are doing in mathematics across the country at the moment, can you tell me with specificity how they are achieving? What I can tell you is that we've got the uh, progression framework that will tell us exactly where our year five students are performing in this area because it's a progression where teachers will know exactly where young people go in their learning. So it won't be specifically this is what year fives do, it will give you an indication of, what, mm. or, and it does give you an indication <coughs> of what year fives can do, but it's a little bit more fluid because we know that mm. young people don't progress at the same rate. Mm. So we do have that work in progress. So, so we actually can't say, with specificity, for example, the Year 5s in Canterbury are doing this well, um, Year 7s in Hawke's Bay are doing this well, Year 8s in Tairawhiti are doing this well. What we can say and what our teachers can mm. say is what each individual child can do and where they are on the progression framework. But you so can't do that. So they would be able to do that. We have... As an our, overarching, the ministry can't do that, for example. We have what we know with all the schools that are doing Better Start Literacy, we mm. know how our young people are progressing in in those first couple in of literacy, years. yeah, but but yeah. say mathematics, for example. Again, the work that we're doing around the common practice model in that will have the ability to be able to show that. But we're not going to go back to national standards because we're not going to have that fail model of this young person's moving but, at a different rate. But we don't rate. actually have good data of, about how any of these students are achieving yeah, at the I'm, moment. Yeah, I'm going to push back on that a little bit because we always did have good data and mm. schools were able to give that good data. So do you have good data know. now? Well, I know the data that schools will tell me and I know the data so that how, the ministry how, how, can how, tell if me. If I said to you to, to, uh, to come back to us later this afternoon and tell us how Year 7's in Tairawhiti are doing, could you tell us? What's the benefit of that? 
Knowing exactly where they are so you can address problems if they're falling well behind. But my local ministry officers can already do that. So Tamaho on the front line have those conversations face-to-face -face with those teachers and that's the whole idea right. of the regional ministry officers, to have those conversations, which is a bit more nuanced than saying this is what we should um, putting money in here than overall region. I want to actually know at the school level. I want to right. know at the individual child level. Yeah. That's what the regional ministry officers do and that's the beauty of them. How bad is the teacher shortage? It is worrying. It is really worrying. I, <clears throat> I know that there are Look, we don't have a bad supply at the moment, but there are subject areas and regional differences mm. where we do have to pay more focus to. And we do have data that shows us that, particularly in those STEM subjects, we've got a real shortage there, or a shortage that we need to be addressing. So a recent PPTA report found that a quarter of teaching roles had no suitable applicants. Why? Yeah. Again, it's so those particular subject areas that we need to be making certain that that's where we're putting our resources yeah. into. So scholarships, for example. <clears throat> we need to make sure that our scholarships are targeting into those specific areas mm. to make sure we've got that pipeline coming through. How much more can a primary teacher earn in Australia than in New Zealand? That's very different rates of what they can earn. It's a little bit, and it's a little bit unfair in many respects because we're talking about two different economies. You'd be talking about Pacific Islands compared to us, um, and but, I get, I get. I mean, that. no one's no one's necessarily going to yeah. move to Fiji for for higher teaching salaries, but they might move to Australia, and they can do that. Yeah, but they might move to New Zealand too from there. How as many well. teachers are moving from Australia to New Zealand? From Australia to New Zealand, mm. actually, we've had a few, and we have had. <laughs> How many's a few? I'm just going to say it this way, we have had 1,200, um, put in place 1,200 overseas um, grants to be able to bring teachers to mm. New Zealand a lot smoother than what's happened in the past. We're getting, I know that we've had enough um, visa applications that have been made for that, that doesn't necessarily translate into jobs, but we are getting so, quite a few people So are we, are we losing more teachers to Australia or gaining more from Australia? I'm going to put it this way. No, 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 Re ask, no, ask that, no listen to this. Retention rates, mm. you have asked about retention rates. Retention rates in New Zealand mm. are at 88.3%. That is exactly the same as June in 2019 prior to COVID. Mm. But what we, so retention's not as bad as what we're hearing, and that is the facts. But what we do know is that we've got regional differences and we have these subject area differences where mm. we need to be putting our energies into. You announced a, a $128 million bailout package this week for universities, mm. many of which have announced job cuts in the, in the last few weeks. So Victoria University has announced it's scrapping its master's and diploma teacher training programs. Yep. How will that impact our teacher shortage? Small numbers, but I don't want to see one teacher being lost to the system. And so therefore we need to take an overall look at the network and that is work that Cabinet have asked me to do and to report back to them by the middle of July. It is a work that we'll be looking at between MB, um, Ministry of Education and TEC. We need to make certain that the network is catering, and, and this is across mm. all areas, not just teaching, but teaching is a specific interest of mine. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, so 
Will that bailout package stop Victoria University from scrapping those programs? That's still up to them. So we said this when we announced this package, that that is still up to them. Uh, they are an autonomous institution. They get to decide this for themselves. A national government will scrap teacher registration fees. Will you commit to doing the same? Well, in the recent collective agreement negotiations, we have put money in there to pay those teacher registration fees. The primary one has been settled. Mm. Of course, secondary is at arbitration right now. All right. Stick with us. Jan Tanetti is back in a couple of minutes on Q&A. Kia ora, welcome back. A fortnight ago on Q&A, we brought you Indira's Stewart story of New Zealand high school students working huge hours to support their families on top of their studies. Here's a quick reminder. I work 25 to 30 hours per week. I work 25 to 30 per hours a week. 25, 26 hours a week. The most I've ever worked was 40 to 50 hours a week. The most hours I've worked in a week would approximately be 47. I do work night shift. I still come to school, like in the mornings. So I go home, get changed and come straight back here. All right, Education Minister Jan Tanetti is back with us. What did you make of that report? I find that really heartbreaking. I really do. I, I saw Indira's story when it came out and I have to say I was very, very upset by that. It's not OK and it's, it's a much wider problem than education, but it really does impact on education. And education gives young people choices. This is taking those choices away from them. How widespread is the issue, do you think? We don't have actual figures, but the Ministry of Education tell me that they have spoken to principals around this and will continue to speak, and they know that there's been an uptick in this area. Right. How significant is the uptick? Reasonably so for them to be worried about it. Like, well, give us a sense of what... I, look, I don't is. have numbers, because that is what I've asked my officials to go back and see if they can quantify this. Right. Uh, but the fact that they could come to me and say that there has been an uptick gives me enough sense to be quite worried about this. Right. What, what can you do about it? It's an all-a-government approach mm. to this. In your portfolios, needed. what can you do? What can I do in my portfolios? Well, education has just changed with the equity index, making certain that the schools <coughs> that need the pastoral care, making certain that they're getting that funding mm. through equity index to be able to appoint people to be in pastoral care. My experience, I know those people in pastoral care can get in, identify the needs of those families and organise the all-of-community approach for wraparound support mm. for them. We, we After that story, we went to some, some principals in what used to be called lower decile schools yeah. but are now through the equity index, schools in, in generally poorer mm. communities. And, and principals said to us, the minister keeps on playing the I too worked at a low decile school card but she and the Ministry are not listening when it comes to our concerns. And I did, and I'll also say this, that I have still close contact with the community that I used to work in because mm. my husband is the General Manager of the Community Centre in that community. I see these families every day. I'm also Minister for Child Poverty Reduction. We have a Child Youth and Wellbeing Strategy that mm. we went into a refresh last year. We know that we have to do this all of community, all of government approach. Mm. This is work that we are currently working through. We have made some changes to child poverty. There are 77,000 young people lifted out of poverty with the after housing cost primary measure. That is not insignificant, but I'm not saying, hey, look no. at us. There is far more that we have to do, but we have to listen to the community to mm. know what it is that's going to make the biggest difference for those really tough cases that we're hearing here. I see these mm. families often. I know that this is tough work, 
I am committed to this work. It is not an overnight shift or an overnight change, mm. but I know that we can do something about this together. Attendance figures were released on Friday. They show that just 60% of New Zealand school students qualified as regularly attending under the criteria school in Term 1. Now, that's an improvement mm. of 9% on Term 4 of last year, but it's still 13% lower than for the same period in 2019. And we would expect to have better numbers in Term 1 because of the seasonal impact. Mm. Why are only 60% of New Zealand students meeting that threshold? There's a variety of reasons there. The main one is that most of those absences were because of uh, medical reasons. So we know that people are listening to us when mm. we say, when you are sick, stay at home, which wasn't the message that was given out prior to COVID. I know myself mm. that I used to turn up. We need to look at that as a metric and make certain that we've got that right. And I've signalled to um, schools, to principals to even cross-party that let's have a discussion around the metrics that we're using because why are we measuring with the medical justified absences in there? So how would, how would you measure it? I think I would take those out. I don't want to get into in a big way because this is me and actually yeah. we all have to have a conversation around this but I would keep them separate, still measure them but keep them separate on when we're saying the young people because we want them to be away when they're mm. sick and I get frustrated that that is being shown in the figures. When we've got self-isolation for COVID and people are isolating for the amount of time that they have mm. to isolate and they're getting flus and they're getting sick, of course we're going to have those measures down but I will say that what I can see is that what we are putting in place is making a difference because I see the weekly measures that come through to me mm. every single week and I know that there are some good things happening. So will you achieve your school attendance targets as they stand, 70% by next year? I think if we keep moving in the right direction, the same direction, then we've got every um, possibility of that happening. We've got a long way to go. I know that principals tell me that they are working really hard mm. on this. They see this as number one. What, what does the, your advisors in the ministry think? Are you going to hit that target? They think that we've got every chance of doing it. We're, we're really positive around this. We mm. are really positive around it. But again, who knows what's around the corner as far as illnesses? It, you know, we didn't know that COVID pandemic was going to happen. Well, it's not just truant children. So, so I looked at um, the time to re-engage unenrolled students, which has massively increased mm. since 2017. So according to written questions, for example, Northland yep. has gone from 64 days in April 2017 to 129 mm. days in April this year. Bay of Plenty, 51 to 171 days. Wellington, 47 to 166 days to re-enrol unenrolled students. Why? Because our attendance services were under pressure, and that's exactly why in this and last budget, and yeah. that's exactly why in this last budget, we've put so much money into the attendance service to make certain that they can lift how many young people that they are engaging with. When we talk about those non-enrolled figures, what people don't understand with that too is those are quite fluid numbers. Mm. So we're not talking about the same kids from term to term. No. Um, because sometimes the non-enrolls are simply because they've been a bit late at re-enrolling in a new school. And that's something that comes up. But It's more than half I'm a not, year in some cases. I'm not saying that we don't have an issue, which mm. is one of the reasons why we're putting that money in to make certain that we are um, giving them more resourcing to be able to do this. Have those truancy services got the money they need to solve this problem? I think they're very close to it now. Now that's conversations that I want to go back out. What 
a lot of people don't realise mm. is that in 2021 we had 22 attendance services. We've re-signed contracts to make sure that mm. these are closer to schools. We now have 79. So we're actually making certain that they are closer to schools. Mm. They understand the communities they're working within. I know when the communities, the attendance service became uh, further away from me and yeah. further away from my school and that it did make this big difference about not re-engaging these yeah, kids. Right. I want to talk about homeschooling. So since 2017, 13,300 applications to homeschool mm. students have been granted, which represents about 90% of all homeschool applications that are actually made. How do we know that those students are actually getting a good education? Yeah, that's actually changing a little bit. Mm. So it's going back in the other direction. We know that, again, COVID had a big impact mm. on that. Uh, and we used to have Eero would go and do the review mm. of the homeschooling, and now we're looking at that more as holistic. That is what actually, does that mean? Well, not the individual site so much, about what the trends and the patterns how, how are. How many home visits would you expect Eero to have completed in that time? So 13,300 applications. I'm not, I don't expect you have the exact number. Yeah, I'm not I don't putting you on the spot. Exact. But how many home visits would you have expected? Eero don't do it like that anymore. That's so, a very different way. And those are questions that I'm asking as well. Now that we've had that big spike that mm. has come through, but it is turning around the other way, I think we've got the opportunity now to look at making certain that those young but, people... But, so you're, you're changing the Eero now, but, but since 2016-17, of th 13,300 applications accepted, how many would you expect home visits? First, well, I would have liked to have thought all of them, but I don't think that that's the case. 13,347 visits. I don't think that's the case of what's happening because it's not realistic, is it? We're not going to be able to get Eero out to everyone. And, They've and made 47. Eero, well, yeah, that's the Eero model changed a lot in that time, but that's advice that I have asked officials around is what can we do to make certain that we're getting good quality provision of education to all of those young people. But Eero's only, the, the, the changes to Eero have only come recently, right? So this is since 2017. That's extraordinary. 47 mm. visits, 13,000 people. How do we know that any of those kids are getting a good education? I don't think we do. That's why I'm asking advice around how we can improve that. Is it, feasib those... is it feasible that some of those homeschool students will be getting no formal education? It could be quite feasible, but what I am saying is, though, of that 13,000, there's quite a lot of them have gone back into the schooling um, situation again in the schooling system. They're just, not all out. There's not whole 13,000. That's 13,000 applications. Many of them... 13,000, yeah, applications yeah. have... But, I mean, so, some applications would have been accepted before 2016-17 yeah. as well. There have been 47 visits, but, I mean, there are potentially thousands of students for whom we have absolutely no idea if they're being educated. Which is the advice that I have asked for. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, okay. Um, if, you, if, you, if you were to step back and, and take a look at the education sector as a whole right now, and I appreciate that it has been a challenging few years, that COVID-19 has changed the, um, changed the game significantly. If you look at these measures, um, I want to get a sense to you as to where the sector is sitting. So this is a bit of a shopping list, I hope you'll forgive me, but you've had to back down on the 20 hours free ECE policy as was announced because the plan was financially unviable and you, you hadn't consulted with the sector. You've got 50% of new primary principals saying they don't see themselves in the job in five years. A quarter of secondary teaching jobs don't have any suitable applicants. Less than half of year 10 students pass the writing test standards for the new NCEA. The biggest school in the country is pulling out of NCEA level one and making up its own qualification because the principal says the new NCA has been so poorly implemented. 
More than a third of Māori leave school without getting at least a level two qualification and the Aero report this week into alternative education was absolutely scathing. After years of disruption from the pandemic, students have continued to miss school because of teacher strikes. Less than 60% of students regularly attended school in Term 1. Thousands of students being homeschooled have not been checked on by Aero. Despite a bailout, hundreds of jobs are being cut at universities into Pukinga, and the university in our capital city is scrapping teacher training programs. So you've been in charge for six years now. Labour has been in charge for six years now. That is the state of our education system. Why should anyone who values education outcomes continue to support Labour? Look, these problems have been coming for decades. In fact, I'm going to go back to 1989 when education was devolved out to the school system and we're the most devolved education system in the world. This has been coming for quite some time. Time and time again, nobody has wanted to lean into these issues. We are not a government who's afraid of the issues. The issues are wicked within education. I've known them for a long time. I've known them firsthand. Mm -hmm. I am not scared of them and I am absolutely committed, which is why I know we are on the right pathway. I can see the results coming through. I started the interview by saying about the Better Start Literacy. I know that we are making a difference in these areas. That is not the only area that we are making a difference in. The NCA is going to be superb. I've seen it with the pilots. I know that we've got to put more robustness into our NCA qualification, which is why we have the co-requisites. Yes, those issues existed before around the number of young people that were not, didn't have the literacy and numeracies. No one was shining a light on it. No one wanted to shine a light on it. We're not scared to shine that light on it. We will continue to do that, but we're going to not let our young people down. We absolutely know that we have to get in there, support the system. I am passionate about education. This has been my life. This is my life, which is why I'm in this role and 100% committed to excellent outcomes for all our young people. Is the sector in crisis? The sector has been, we're moving beyond that now and I can see great outcomes that are coming and I am excited about the outcomes that we're starting to see. Minister Jantanetti, tēnā koe, thanks for your time. Kia If you want to contact the Q&A team, please, kōrere or mai. These are our main platforms. You can hit us up on email, you can find us on Twitter or on Facebook. Coming up, we like to think of New Zealand as a top-tier food-producing nation, but one expert says we need to make massive changes to the way we grow. Hoki mighty, we welcome back. If you've ever run a business, just try and imagine what it'd be like to lose 20% of your production overnight. That's what the apple and pear industries had to deal with after Cyclone Gabrielle, which through a brutal combination of circumstances took out an estimated one-fifth of the entire country's apple and pear crop. With extreme weather disasters becoming more frequent, food systems expert Emily King says New Zealand needs to rethink its food system. She's just published a new book called ReFood, and she is with us this morning. Kia ora, good morning. Morena, Jack. The disasters hit food growing areas in January and February of this year, and then February and March saw the highest rate of food uh, price inflation in years. Talk to us about how those events are linked. Thanks, Jack. Um, Morena. Yeah, they're really linked. So um, what we're seeing with um, increased weather events, whether that be a drought or a severe storm um, that Cyclone Gabriel obviously brought, um, is pressure on the system and our production. Um, and so that obviously impacts on, on the numbers. And I will say it's not only 
New Zealand, right? So mm. this is global. Um, the food system is global and we're in a small part of that. And so um, it's not only our own growers and farmers and fishers um, that are affected by this, but it's international. And of course, that means there's you know a bigger picture in mm. place there. When it, when it comes to trying to reduce our emissions, how should we go about thinking about food production? Um, well, there's lots of things we can we can do there, and food production is obviously a key part of it. Um, when you look at the full food system, how food is grown, um, how it's made, and then ultimately how it gets to people or doesn't get to people, um, the largest area um, is is our production. It's how we we grow food. Um, there are, I will say though, there are impacts across the full system. It's not only our farmers and growers that have. Um, you know, create emissions, manufacturing also does, and so does food waste and food consumption. Um, it's just the biggest impact is, is felt there. So um, that's obviously a key focus when people are talking about the food system, but what I'm trying to do is get people to understand the full cycle of it, not only that part. So, so New Zealand likes to think of itself as being a top tier food producing nation. Clearly uh, food production not only has a massive economic value to New Zealand but, but culturally as well. It's, it's part of what makes us New Zealanders. What do you think would surprise people about what you see as being the, the dirtier elements of our food production system? Yeah. Well I will say first of all we are a top food producing na nation and we should continue to be proud of that. Um, however there's a lot we can do and it's not only about production so um, it's also about how people get food or don't get food and we have um, startling statistics around lack of access to a food um, in our country and food affordability. Um, so that would probably be one of the main points for people to be aware of that if you're looking at the full system it's not only how great the food is we grow um, mm. but it's whether or not we get it to people so they can eat it um, and that's not happening properly. Yeah it's interesting isn't it because New Zealand exports a lot of premium you know, primary industry products whether, whether it's fruit and vegetables or meat or dairy products and then imports often nutritionally lower value foods but you write about how domestic consumption should be prioritised in New Zealand we should feed ourselves and then feed the world so, so how have we got that balance out of whack? Yeah, it's an interesting one because if you take the full food system, they're very interconnected, um, but we sort of compartmentalise different parts of the food system, so trade and economics and selling things is separated in the current system to how we feed people, and, and there are practical reasons for that, but um, at the end of the day, we're sending away, as you said, high-quality, nutrient-dense food, and we're importing <coughs> low-quality, um, you know, highly-processed um, food, and at the same time, we are not getting good food to our people. So what we can do, I think, is think about the full system and design it so that we're actually feeding people um, really good food and making sure our country's fed and then also ensuring our farmers and growers get good, mm. well, not just farmers and growers, but also our food makers and manufacturers can also um, get, um, you know, income from exporting good food. So how will we do that? How will we redesign it? I think that there are many good initiatives where we can um, look at prioritising the, um, the local population and there are some great ones when you look at um, you know, fruit and vegetable boxes and, and other um, sort yeah. of supply issues that can come in. Um, I mean there's a, there's a massive lot of work to do. Um, it's not only um, making it affordable but it's also making it accessible. But the problem is that at the moment arguably food producers are driven by 
economic incentives. So if you want to reprioritize or reorder our food system so that people in poorer communities have better access to high quality food, somehow you need to shift the economic incentives. And how do you go about doing that? Yeah, it's a complex question, Jack. And I, I don't think I have all the answers for how we actually do it, but it's definitely a conversation we need to start having as a country because mm. it's just, um, it's terrible that we have so many people that can't afford our food and can't get access to it, but yet we profit massively as a country off of sending away really good food. So mm. there's there's something that needs to be done there, and I think more and more people are waking up to the idea that this is an anomaly in the system and what can we do better. How do you see the role of New Zealand's clean, green image going forward when it comes to our premium international exports? Yeah, well, we do have some really fantastic um, growers and farmers who adhere to that, and I think it really needs supporting. Um, however, we've got a lot of work to do, and I think that if we um, look at you know, where the future trends are going, um, we really need to make sure that we're um, improving that story and making sure that that story is accurate. Um, mm. And yeah, and what I will say is... Is it accurate is, as um, a whole now? Look, we have really um, we have impacts on our soils and we have mm. impacts on our waterways and climate change from our food production and also on packaging and food waste and manufacturing so we do have a lot of work to do um, I do believe though that we have some really great farmers and growers um, mm. and manufacturers who are working better towards things um, mm. but there's definitely a lot of work to do there's a point you make in the book about the difficult, uh, difficulty of producing economically viable bananas in New Zealand <laughs> because we have, truthfully, much higher labour standards than traditional banana-producing countries. So is it possible to produce food more cheaply without resorting to the kind of labour conditions that would make many New Zealanders uncomfortable? Yeah, it's a really hard question because the reality of the cheaper food, especially the stuff we import, is there are often dubious labour and human rights standards behind that. And there's a there's a lot going on in the global food system that, mm. um, that means that we do get cheaper, um, poorer quality um, goods. Um, and so I think the banana example is a really good one um, to question that. And, and I think we should continuously be questioning um, where our food's coming from, how it's grown, how it's made, and, and who's involved in that, and valuing the people that are doing that well. Um, so that we can improve the system. Mm. Yep. The National Party is um, pledging as part of its um, election policy to essentially scrap the GM and GE ban in New Zealand, and I appreciate there's not a total ban, but what do you make of the recent discussions about the potential for using more GM technology or GE technology in New Zealand food producing? I would be very cautious around opening the floodgates again on these sorts of things. Um, I think... I think there's been, you know, 20 years of, of quite a cautious approach, um, and I think that we've got, we've actually done some really great things in our country um, without GM modifications. Although, as you said, there's still some exceptions, like you know, we can still do that in other countries, just not New Zealand. So, um, I think I would be very cautious around it. Do you worry about urban expansion into food producing areas? Yeah, I really do worry about that. Um, <laughs> I think that some of our urban areas are spreading out and sprawling into our highly productive land. And I think that once it's paved, it's gone. And so um, protecting that resource for future generations is something that we should be prioritising as a country. Yeah. Um, 
I know that ReFood looks at all aspects um, of our food production, so production but also the way that food is brought to the table for New Zealanders as well. It considers food waste. It's a very interesting read. Thank you so much for your time. Oh, thank you, Jack. Emily King, her book is ReFood. After the break, a year since the DHBs were scrapped and Te Whatu Order was established, we asked what tangible improvements have there been for the health system. Hoki Maiti, we're welcome back to Q&A. It's a year since the DHBs were scrapped in favour of Te Whatu Order, Health New Zealand. But the health sector continues to face significant challenges off the back of COVID-19, with funding pressures and staff shortages affecting services and treatment around the country. Margie Upper is the CEO of Te Whatu Order. Kia ora, good morning. We know there were no promises of um, a magical overnight improvement necessarily, but in the space of a year, what is the biggest tangible improvement to our healthcare system since the establishment of Te Water? Well, firstly, Jack, can I just say thank you to all the health um, care workers that are in, um, not just those employed by Te Order, but those who work um, with our partner um, NGOs and in the funded sector. Mm. It has been a challenging year, and I think an important um, reflection to look back on is that we have maintained continuity of care and access to services through all those challenges. We had COVID in our first five months. Mm. Uh, we had weather events in the beginning of this calendar year, and also in the backdrop of um, some of the largest workforce shortages I have seen um, in the health system in my 25 years. So, so what's the biggest tangible improvement? Well, not just keeping services open, but we are seeing some early signs of what bringing together those services can achieve. Uh, certainly we have uh, invested in workforce and that's been possible because we've pulled resources across mm. the, the country. Uh, we're really pleased to have tried some new things. Uh, so this winter we've introduced some funding for minor ailments or services people mm. can get from pharmacy. Now over 10,000 New Zealanders have accessed that service in the first two weeks. So we're quite excited about that. But also just supporting uh, primary care, putting more resources to give them tools to refer people for diagnostics without waiting for hospitals. Uh, we're also seeing some early signs of our hospital teams working together across regions. Mm. Uh, we've seen national team support cancer and cardiac services and just to tackle those wait times across the country. And just as a great example, a shout out to the Te Waipounamu team. Uh, over 300 people that live in Christchurch in Dunedin got a procedure at Timaru Hospital that would not have worked, not would, have, would not have happened in the last uh, environment without a lot of haggling over funding. Yeah, right. I see that's 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 interesting. So in July uh, of last year, the four-month surgical wait list was 28,000. In April of this year, it was almost 35,000. In July last year, the wait list for a first specialist appointment was 37,000. In April, it was 56,000. Do you accept that by those measures, access to healthcare has worsened? I accept that it's... Um, difficult to stay on top of wait lists when we have such huge workforce shortages. Uh, we, we, you know, one of the biggest issues for us is that we need to get people into services. We're really mindful that our, mm. our colleagues are uh, really worried about shifts not being able to be filled, being called back to do um, work when others become sick. And so we need to tackle our workforce uh, shortages. In, in March last year, you told Business Desk, quote, from July, the minister's got some targets, <clears throat> excuse me, he will want us to, uh, want to hold us accountable for. 
And then there are access indicators like wait times. So, so what specifically are the targets you're being held accountable for? Well, we have had uh, the target of getting people booked uh, within four months of being referred for treatment. And that has been a long-standing goal for the health system, and we'll keep that, working That's that four-month surgical wait yep. list. So it went from 28,000 to 35,000. What, what is the target that you're... You've been seen. Well, we want to chip away at uh, giving people certainty that when we book them, um, and particularly uh, focusing on people who've been waiting or long waiters mm. uh, as, as soon as possible, uh, so that they patients have certainty. But also, we've been confident that when we book people, we've got the staffing and the theatres available sure. uh, to provide uh, that care. But I mean, specifically, what what targets? If it was twenty eight thousand when Tafatu Order was established, what is the target you are being held accountable for there? What's the number? Well, as I said, we want to tackle the long waiters and get people booked. So nobody's waiting more than three years by the end of June. We'd like to get that, uh, you know, people who've been waiting 24 to 12 months booked over the next six months and by the end of June next year. So really just chipping away at that. But again, workforce and theatre availability is going to be a real issue for us to tackle. Why haven't emergency department wait times been public report, uh, publicly reported in the last six months? Well, that's a mistake on our part. Uh, those uh, indicators are normally published every three months, uh, and, uh, the, and it takes three months because uh, from the point of when a patient sees a doctor and how we aggregate that, it does take some time to check the quality of that information. Mm. Uh, in July last year, we moved too quickly uh, to report that information mm. on a monthly basis without having all those checks in place. And so we're going back to basics to get that right. And again, we've inherited a system that has lots of different information systems from which we pull that information, uh, ranging from those uh, hospitals that can automate that data mm. and others who are still working off spreadsheets. Do you expect that the, the, those wait times will have worsened? Uh, I don't know. I have to, haven't seen the data yet, but we will well, get back to quarterly yeah. reporting. But what, what, what's, what is your expectation, though? There? You must have a sense as to whether or not wait times for ED departments have improved or, or become worse. Well, certainly, given our workforce shortages and we are in the middle of winter, uh, they will be a challenge. Transparency is a concern in some quarters. Has Te Whatu Order shared the results of its internal staff survey yet? Uh, we've shared that with the teams and locally. So every hospital and team who uh, has data will, will have that. So that's mm. where it matters. It's uh, teams that need to take that information and act on that. So staff reported that two thirds of staff don't uh, say they don't have the resources they need to do the jobs. That's not just a staffing issue, that's actually a resourcing issue. Mm -hmm. What's your response to that? Well, I, it's very much, uh, uh, you know, if staff are saying that it's, it's right, uh, workforce shortages is part of the, the challenge, but we also heard in the feedback, and certainly when I have gone to talk to teams locally, mm. uh, you know, the buildings and infrastructure is a real mm. challenge. We are asking people to do amazing work in facilities that are not fit for purpose anymore. Mm. Um, and we know that um, some of our staff have challenges uh, getting the resources that they need, so there's lots to do to uh, make sure that they are getting the decisions, um, that we are uh, putting on a plan, the investment mm. and infrastructure that we need to give them the space and the, the ability to do their work. What changes would make the biggest positive difference to your workforce issues? Uh, just filling our vacancies. We, we've got some hope. Uh, we have, uh, in our first two months, we put a lot of resource into workforce. So. Uh, we have over almost 2,500 people waiting uh, to come into the country. They've applied for work visas. Uh, we've put How long are they to, waiting? 
Uh, I don't know the wait times for mm. visas, but it's certainly given us some hope that there's interest to come and work in New Zealand. Mm. Uh, we've uh, funded uh, you know, over 600 people who, uh, nurses particularly, who want to return to nursing, mm. or those who've been trained and qualified overseas, but have not yet qualified in New Zealand, so we want to subsidise uh, that group. We've put lots of work into pipelines, and that's ahead mm. of a workforce plan that can tell us more specifically how big the gap is, and uh, our job over the next year is to convert them into people who turn up on a roster. When we speak to frontline health workers, one of the biggest opportunities they see, and I'm sure you hear this every day, is the establishment of a nationwide IT system in which all patient data is accessible. And I know to some viewers it will still seem extraordinary that in 2023 New Zealand does not have a system that allows for that. Where is the development of that system at? Well, that's the work of the coming year. Uh, we have spent this past year actually in a process of due diligence or discovery of what we have actually got um, mm. in the system. And we have over 1,500 projects that we just need to simplify. And we see huge opportunity in bringing together investments to fast track. Um, that's certainly something clinicians have been asking for for a long time. Some regions have got a, a clinical portal working well, mm. better than others. And so we want to get a more national consistent. Well, the idea is that you want someone in Auckland theoretically to be able to access yes. a patient's data if that patient spent yes. their whole life into Waipo number, right? Yep. So, so at what point do you think from what you understand now, at what point will we have a nationwide IT system? I can't tell you that because we need to do the work um, on what it would take to go from what we have today, uh, over 6,000 applications in mm. our system, to bring it, to unify that to one. Is it, I mean just give, to give us a sense of the time though, is it, is it the sort of thing that can be fixed do you think in 12 or 24 months or are we looking at you know well, years? Well our understanding and learning from other health systems if mm. I take uh, one that we've studied closely Alberta it took them three to four years to get to a, 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 a provincial wide uh, electronic medical health record that is an mm. important part of being able to then um, do all the things that we want to do mm. wherever patients go their clinician can get their information we have um, again some early signs we've got uh, we've made progress in joining up uh, pharmacy scripts where people mm. can get a script in one place and be able to get it renewed when they're somewhere else in the country without having to go back to their pharmacy and even picking it up from a pharmacy. There was a lot of attention given to the algorithm used to prioritise patients for surgery because it included a patient's ethnicity as one of several metrics in that algorithm. To create a more equitable system, will it be necessary to consider ethnicity in other parts of healthcare delivery? Well. Uh, equity um, has a number of dimensions, so yes, ethnicity is one, and ethnicity is a, a data uh, that we've been collecting for many, many years, yeah. um, but just as important is uh, where people live, yep. um, where uh, when we um, look at the differences in access to healthcare, people who live with mental health conditions, people who right. have disabilities, also experience poor access to care. So all of those dimensions are important. Yeah, right. Thinking about so, it. So, but to the question though, will will it be necessary to create more equitable health outcomes to consider a patient's ethnicity and those other factors when it comes to other aspects of healthcare delivery? Yes, where um, it is accompanied. So it's only one data point where it is accompanied by research and. Uh, most of the work that we do in looking at ethnicity as a factor among mm. others is also accompanied by research which tells us actually there is some real validity in the gaps that mm. we are seeing in, in care. So just, just for example, could, would it be feasible to create a more equitable healthcare system for Māori to have access to free dental? 
Yes, uh, that is a possibility. Uh, but again, uh, there will be other groups mm. that we need to consider alongside that. Children, quite importantly. Yeah, I mean, they um, have it And at we the have an existing yeah. system where we know that uh, adolescents, children and adolescents under 18 are not getting mm. equitable access to care. Māori in particular, but also rural, children and young people living in rural mm. areas and Pacific. All right, Margie, you've got a big job. Thank you so much for giving us your time. Sure. Margie Upper, the CEO of Te Whatawater Health New Zealand. Kua mutu, that is Q&A for this week. From the Q&A team, thanks for watching. Nā mihi kia koutou inga karere. Thanks for your feedback. Hey tērā wiki, we'll see you next Sunday at 9am. Q&A is public interest journalism funded through New Zealand On Air.